Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk about Turkey's foreign policy under President Recep Tayyip Erdogan. What does Turkey's role in the world say about the influence of so-called middle powers? And with Turkish elections coming up in a few weeks, would a change in leadership bring a change in policy? In this century of Turkey, let's transform our country into being a moving force of the global wheel instead of one of the cogs of it. Let us move towards a future with hopes, dreams, self-confidence and courage. Let us face both east and west, but continue to always face the truth. That was Erdogan speaking last October on Turkish TV. A few years ago, Turkey seemed boxed in. It was at odds with many of its neighbors and with much of the Gulf. It had been left out of regional gas deals and the East Mediterranean. Its relations with the US and other NATO allies were strained. Today, things look a bit different. Turkey's worked at repairing relations with the Saudis, the Emirates, Israel, even Egypt. Its friends have done well in recent fighting in Libya and Nagorno-Karabakh, in large part thanks to Turkish support. Growing demand for Ankara's drones has increased Turkey's global influence. And in Ukraine, Erdogan helped mediate the Black Sea grain deal, crucial to getting Ukrainian grain onto global markets. Here's the Turkish president again. At a time when wars, conflicts and tensions are increasing all around us, we are the only country that makes sincere efforts for peace by establishing an equal, moral and fair relationship with all parties. In some ways, Turkey is the archetypal middle power. A NATO member, but with close ties to Russia, part of Europe, the Middle East and Asia, assertive in defending its interests in its neighborhood as the role of big powers evolves, involved in one way or another on many of today's battlefields, and now one of the world's leading suppliers of drones. So what to make of Turkey's foreign policy? What does it say about the influence middle powers enjoy in today's multipolar world? What should we expect from Turkey's elections in May, held shortly after this horrific earthquake that killed more than 50,000 people? And how much would change with a different government in Ankara? To talk about all this, I'm very happy to welcome back onto the podcast Nigar Gerksel, Crisis Group's Project Director for Turkey. Nigar, welcome back. Thanks so much, Richard. Great to join again. So, Nigar, today we're going to talk mostly about Turkish foreign policy, but could we start very quickly with the elections themselves? I mean, first of all, are they going to go ahead on schedule? Yes, indeed. 14th of May, we have both presidential and parliamentary elections. There may be a second round or a runoff for the presidential elections. If no one receives the majority, that will be a week later. And there are four candidates, but essentially the race is between President Erdogan and the leader of the main opposition party, CHP, Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu. Kılıçdaroğlu is the joint candidate of an alliance of six parties that represent a broad spectrum of Turkish society that includes Turkish nationalists, center-left, which is his constituency, and religious conservatives. He has been the leader of CHP since 2010 and so far hasn't marked a victory. Right, his record in recent elections isn't that impressive. Well, there's an exception, of course. There's a 2019 local elections where both Istanbul and Ankara that had been strongholds of AKP went to opposition candidates. Yes, it wasn't his own personality, Kılıçdaroğlu, but it was his design in a way and his campaigns that enabled the big, important cities of Istanbul and Ankara to change hands. I think that leads people to think that the opposition has a chance. But he isn't the fiery and decisive strongman, um, at least in terms of vibe, that President Erdogan is. 
So he's trying to play on different strengths. In some ways, Clutsterolo is the polar opposite of Erdogan, right? But I mean, why has the opposition gone for someone that's sort of so different? In a way, they want to use that to their advantage because these are very disruptive parties that have come together. So they have to have things that unite them. And one of the things that unite them is that they're going to go back to rule of law, separation of powers, parliamentary system, you know, a system where one man doesn't have so much power. And instead, all the institutions step up and the one man at top steps down. So in a way, they're using having a less charismatic person at the helm to their advantage. Uh, of course, whether that will actually stick in terms of the voters is yet to be seen. But that's the party platform is that we're united for rule of law and not one man decision making. Has this terrible earthquake across parts of Turkey, has that impacted much the campaign or, or the way people see the vote? At first, it seemed like there would be, well, there was anger towards the government, both because of uh, the building codes that seem not to have been implemented, which led to the collapse of buildings to a proportion that may not have been the case otherwise, but also incompetence in search and rescue, delays in, in getting to places that needed help. So there was an initial anger. But when you sort of look at it now, in retrospect, Erdogan did apologize. He apologized for the state response being delayed in a certain place, I believe. And he's also made ambitious pledges to hand people back better houses in a year. And his voter base seems to still believe that he's more likely to deliver a recovery than this sort of six different parties, incoherent alternatives. So when you look at the opinion polls today, and of course, there are a lot of different polls that say different things, not too much seems to have changed. The economy, yes, it, it was already struggling significantly, and it's going to struggle even more because of the earthquake. But again, his constituencies say if anybody can repair, it's still Erdogan. And from the way you describe it, it sounds as though really at the moment it could go either way, that it's not impossible that the opposition prevails, that Klubsterolo and his coalition win, but it's also easily feasible that, uh, that Erdogan holds on to power. I mean, Niga, tell me just the pro-Kurdish People's Democratic Party, the HDP. So that is not a member of either the opposition, nor is allied to Erdogan's AKP Justice and Development Party. Does that mean that the Kurdish vote could swing it? The HDP is not fielding a candidate for president. And its constituency is, say, you know, 10 to 13 percent. Most will likely support Kulçdaroğlu. But they haven't pointed to a candidate um, themselves. They've just decided that they're not going to field an individual. In one sense, that's great because, I mean, great for Kulçdaroğlu, because one would assume that many of them will vote for him. But on the other hand, the fact that they're not fielding a candidate is playing into the hands of the nationalists that are framing Kulçdaroğlu as part of the unpatriotic terrorist bloc. So I think that's had a mixed result but probably by and large uh, strengthening the opposition's hand. So let's then move to Turkish foreign policy. Maybe we could look at a few key areas before we talk about policy as a whole and start with the war in Ukraine and this sort of tightrope that Turkey has trodden really between its NATO membership and reasonably cordial relations with Moscow. So what over the past year, Ankara has kept its lines of communication to the Kremlin 
open. Turkish markets have stayed open to Russian businesses, to Russian tourism. But Turkey has also sent weapons to Kiev. It's sent its famous Bayraktar drones, uh, which we'll talk about in more depth towards the end. Turkey stopped the Russian ships that are off the Syrian coast going into the Black Sea via the Bosphorus. And perhaps most importantly, it's helped broker with the UN this Black Sea grain deal. On the other hand, Erdogan has also obstructed Sweden's NATO membership for a while, Finland's, although down that is going ahead, which to some degree seems like a bit of a misstep. It's cost Erdogan quite a bit of support in Europe. But on balance, Turkish influence, uh, Erdogan's influence abroad has probably increased since the start of the war. I mean, do you think that's how it's seen as well in Ankara? Turkey has been a vocal supporter of Ukraine's sovereignty and territorial integrity. And actually, it's not just the last few years, because we have to look back to 2014, when Crimea was annexed by Russia. And actually, Turkey at that time was much more uh, forward-leaning uh, than many Western allies. And in fact, it was criticizing the West for inertia, because for Turkey, that was a very important turning point when the naval balances would tip in Russia's favor in the Black Sea. So it was actually back then when Turkey started to support Ukraine militarily as well. And it was in the forefront of the support. Actually, the tables turned in a way a couple of months after the full invasion of Ukraine, where Turkey was being cautious about burning bridges with Moscow due to both its economic dependencies and its vulnerabilities to Russia in various conflict theaters, including probably foremost Syria. I think in Turkey's assessment is that net balance, yes, positive. It's been contributing to Ukraine's position. On the other hand, there's a very strong view across the political spectrum, I would say, in Turkey, that Russia is Turkey's neighbor and Turkey will act with NATO, but not go beyond that when it comes to taking a stance against Russia. And there are many reasons for that. It's also a trust issue where Turkey is, looks to what the U.S. has done in its neighborhood in the last 10, 20 years, from Afghanistan to Iraq, and worries about being left out on a limb after the U.S. attention is turned elsewhere. And so there's a caution and a confidence problem on Turkey's end. Nigar, Turkey has long been hedging between Russia and the West, balancing its NATO membership with reasonably good relations with um, with Russia. But do you think the Ukraine war has made that more difficult or has it in fact opened up opportunities? On the one hand, obviously NATO allies are much angrier at Moscow. In some ways, there's more pressure on Turkey. On the other hand, in some ways, the bitter relations give Turkey more leverage and, and more influence precisely because it has relations with both sides. It's hard to say because for many years, there have been people that have said you need to choose between West and Russia, and developments have not made that a necessity, and quite the contrary. I think in retrospect, people in Ankara probably can make the argument that the fact that they hadn't made a choice until today has been to their favor. But we do have conversations with strategic thinkers in, in Ankara who say if push comes to shove, of course... Turkey is going to be on the side of the West, but that will be as late as possible. I think there's also a skepticism about where this war can lead. I mean, since Russia is not going to be annihilated, and there are some concerns about if you weaken Russia too much, what does it do in response? You know, things can get much more ugly. And this is a concern that Turkey raises consistently. 
And so Erdogan's relations with Putin, Turkey's relations with Russia, I mean, it's been a bit of a roller coaster over the last decade. I mean, they're on opposite sides in Syria, which we'll talk about in a moment. And this almost a low mark of their relations in 2015, Turkey shot down this Russian jet sort of somewhere on the Turkey-Syria border, led to this real sort of deterioration of relations, Russian sanctions against Turkey. And then there was the coup attempt against Erdogan in 2016, and that seemed to bring Erdogan and Putin together. And there was talk, maybe even the Russians warned Erdogan about it ahead of time. Then the following year, they moved forward with the S-400 sales. So Turkey buying this missile system from Russia to the fury of Ankara's NATO allies. At the same time, both Turkey and Russia involved on different sides, or certainly with competing interests in Libya and the South Caucasus. I mean, Nigo, do you want to say something about sort of what Ankara gets from its relations with Moscow and how much of that is based on Erdogan himself and could change with a different government? And how much is more the country's core strategic interests? I think we need to break that down because firstly, there is a view that Turkey has counterbalanced Russia in places that would otherwise have fallen strictly under Russia's grip. And that includes the places that you um, mentioned. So it's uh, Libya, Syria, Azerbaijan. And there's a view, I mean, and I, th I think this is actually also verified by some people we talked to in Ukraine, that, for example, Odessa may not have held had it not been for Turkey closing the Basra Strait. On the other hand, there's also a balancing performance that Turkey has been displaying that's not even very new. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of enduring reality. And even during the Soviet times, you see Turkey acting with the Soviets on, on certain issues of mutual interest, so on industry development and whatnot. It never was military, though. And so the S-400 issue was an anomaly in terms of being the first time that Ankara and Moscow made a made military cooperation. So S-400, I think, is is the anomaly, but the, the pattern of, of balancing between Russia and the West is very much enduring. And then you have the personal level where I think I is somewhat different, where there are definitely personal vested interests between Putin and Erdogan. I think it's very much in Putin's interest for Erdogan to remain in power. And there have been some moves of recent that have been pointed to in the public discourse that demonstrate that Putin's effort to um, play into to Erdogan's hands. For example, um, a payment to the nuclear plant, Akkuyu, that didn't need to be made as early as it was. And then uh, supposedly, and I can't, I can't verify, but natural gas payments that Turkey needs to be making to Russia have been postponed for some months. So because of Turkey's economic troubles, Russia is helping it out. And these kind of things mean a lot at a, at a period that's a run up to the elections in, in Turkey, where the economy is in particularly dire straits. So I think there's both the personal relations, but also a strategic relationship that wouldn't change very much. When I talk to the opposition, for example, the Turkish opposition, about what would change in Turkey-Russia relations if they came to power, they say that it will be a more institutionalized relationship. So less personal and more sort of between foreign ministries and defense ministries. They say that they would commit to keep the S-400s in a box. And they say that because they primarily are positioning themselves on the side of democracy and rule of law, that there will be no longer a bonding on the basis of being 
excluded from the West on democratic grounds. But otherwise, they say, yes, we'll have to tell NATO we are Russia's neighbor, and there's a limit to how much we're going to confront Russia. And we'll have to tell Russia that we're a member of NATO. So there is going to be a degree of balancing that continues. And we'll move to Syria in a moment, where Turkey, Russia, both very involved. But Nigo, just before we do that, could you say something about Turkey's role, together with the UN, in mediating the Black Sea grain deal? It's arguably been the high point of Ukraine war diplomacy, which hasn't yielded much in terms of sort of ending the war, but has done some useful things, including this deal, prisoner exchanges, various other things. And it's something that President Erdogan himself has been personally involved in. Yeah, it's, it's at the highest level, in a way, the facilitation or mediation role that Turkey aspires to. So Erdogan call up Putin and then call up Zelensky. And there have been efforts that, that haven't uh, delivered results. For example, there was an initiative that Erdogan apparently made for uh, Russia to hand back the nuclear power plant to Ukraine. Didn't work. This is the Zaporizhia. Zaporizhia, yeah, exactly. And then uh, the Turkish intelligence uh, at you know a different level is involved in the prisoners' exchange uh, negotiations. Again, whether that'll happen or not, I don't know. But it's Turkish intelligence that's there at the border running that dialogue. The grain deal, we actually visited the headquarters, the coordination rooms. Those are in Turkey? They're in Istanbul, exactly. And so we got a lot of first-hand information about how the inspections take place and you know, two different sites where both Russians and Ukrainians are, are present. And in many ways, it's, it's groundbreaking. And in many ways, it's also struggling in that Russia's not very satisfied with the results because of its interest not necessarily being served. There was an element of the deal, which is not exactly an element of the deal, so a little bit complicated because a side deal that Russia had with the UN, um, where Russia was also supposed to be able to export ammonia, which has not happened. So there, there are some disillusionments on the Russian side, and that's leading them to drag things along, slow down inspections of ships that are transporting Ukrainian grain. It's not working perfectly, but still it's one of the few accomplishments, let's say, of Turkey. A lot else has been just having an open dialogue channel and not much to show for it. So let's move then to Syria. So there's a few things going on there. I mean, first, after years of Turkey backing efforts to oust Syrian President Bashar al-Assad, Turkish and Syrian officials have now met a few times. This comes as other states in the region are also starting to think about normalizing relations with Damascus. So there's that. There's also the northwest, really the last rebel-held area where Turkish troops have deployed to prevent a regime offensive. But maybe let's start with northeast Syria and the YPG, this Kurdish-led group that controls much of the northeast and that Ankara sees as part of the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. The PKK has been fighting for decades against the Turkish state. It's designated by Ankara, many other states, including Western states, as a terrorist group. And to be fair, the links between the PKK and the YPG are pretty tight, I mean, maybe even tighter than a few years ago. So Erdogan sees the YPG as a major threat. And obviously, in Ankara's eyes, it didn't help that the YPG was the US's main local partner in the fight against ISIS. Got a whole bunch of weapons and support during those efforts. So I guess the first question, is another Turkish offensive into northeast Syria against the YPG before the election? Is that likely? There was speculation that Turkey might conduct an incursion into northeast Syria before the elections because it does bump up nationalist uh, support 
by a few points and it usually lasts only a few months. So uh, there was a window where a lot of people were thinking that, that that might happen. But I think there were two reasons why that fell off the agenda. Um, one was that Russia, the United States and Iran, all three, took a very firm stance against Turkey pursuing any further incursions. And they each were related to a different part of the areas that Turkey might have carried out its incursion into. And Niga, just to be clear, Russia and Iran on Assad's side and the US, which has troops present in Syria, nominally still to fight ISIS, they're all basically influential in different areas that a Turkish offensive might have taken place in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. The earthquake was the second reason why I think that has fallen off the agenda. Uh, you know, it's ne- nothing is ever impossible, but it seems much less likely than maybe a few months ago. And over time, given these links between the YPG and the PKK, Turkey's approach in northeast Syria towards the YPG is going to be shaped by its sort of struggle against the PKK more broadly? Yeah, I mean, Turkey has, since the ceasefire broke down in 2015, Ankara has been very bent on weakening PKK by military means as much as possible. And that conflict has played out mostly in northern Iraq, particularly since 2019, where we tracked the fatalities of the PKK conflict and a majority have now shifted to north Iraq, both via ground operations and airstrikes and drones. And I think while there was a hope at some point, or some people thought it might be possible for Turkey and and YPG to accommodate each other, at least for the conflict in northeast Syria to be de-escalated, separate from Turkey's PKK conflict, even though Turkey's PKK conflict was raging on, I think that expectations of that have significantly reduced because the, the view from Ankara is that PKK has consolidated its grip of the Syrian YPG elements, and that the only way to, in effect, stabilize northeast Syria is also going to be through weakening PKK at large. So right now in Ankara, it's hard to hear any alternative to that trajectory. Then you have these recent meetings between Turkish and Syrian officials, and part of that is about the YPG. But beyond that, sort of more broadly, what is Ankara hoping to get from those talks? There are two main objectives that Ankara has when it comes to normalizing relations with Assad. And one is related to the Northeast and one is related to the Northwest, but they're both limited in that in the Northeast, of course, uh, Turkey's objective in general is to defeat or contain the YPG. The way Ankara sees it, you know, PKK or PKK's affiliate controls one third of Syria. Um, And so, as far as I understand, what Ankara says to Damascus is either you deal with them or we're going to have to continue to fight them with whatever means we have, which is nowadays mostly drone attacks and hit and runs and assassinations. The way Ankara sees it is that Assad doesn't have the capacity to carry out sort of a decisive action against YPG, and therefore little might come out of its normalization attempt with Assad vis-a-vis the Northeast. I think the bigger expectation that they have from their normalization with Assad relates to the Northwest, um, where they think that a certain calm can be sustained in the Northwest of Syria via a dialogue with Assad. They can ensure that more displacement doesn't happen in the Northwest of Syrians who are currently settled there. So there is this uneasy ceasefire with Turkish forces actually stationed along the front lines around Idlib. And Turkey 
they're mostly motivated by wanting to avoid potentially millions more Syrians coming into Turkey, adding to the three and a half million Syrians that are there already. Indeed, the biggest, I think, interest that Turkey has in the short term is to prevent more displacement. But in the medium term, both the government and the opposition parties are pledging that they're going to send at least a, a significant portion of the of the Syrian ref- refugees in Turkey back to Syria. But I think that both Turkish current government officials who say this and the opposition leaders who pledge it, I, I think that they know that in the foreseeable future, it's going to be very unlikely that refugees can be sent back en masse since their safety can't be guaranteed. And then, of course, Turkey is also binded by international conventions. They can't send refugees forcibly back to an area that's not, or a country that's not deemed safe. And so what Turkish opposition and the government both say is that they're going to make sure that Syrians go back voluntarily. Well, which Syrian is going to go back voluntarily unless the conditions of living there, and the jobs and the education and the health uh, services is comparable to Turkey? And I don't see that happening anytime soon. And I think this is the type of dialogue that the Turkish officials right now are having with their Syrian counterparts saying, look, you know, the day that this can happen without putting the returning people at risk or the people that currently live there at risk, we're happy to withdraw our troops. But we don't see the conditions to do that today. And what we hear from Ankara is that just having that conversation is useful for Ankara. It reduces the negative fallout that the extreme anti-Assad stance has had on Turkey's relations with Baghdad and Tehran. And it also helps in terms of Turkish domestic uh, politics because Turkish public doesn't necessarily always register the details. They assume that if there's a dialogue going on with the Assad government, then that means that tomorrow YPG is going to be weaker and the Syrian refugees in Turkey are going to go back. And that prospect in itself takes a certain uh, load off of the politicians back uh, in, in, in today's Turkish context where those are really important issues. The other complication to Turkish policy in the northwest is that that area, a big chunk of Idlib, is controlled by Hayat Takhar al-Sham, this former al-Qaeda affiliate, one that's still very Islamist, but that has actually moved away from al-Qaeda, explicitly said that it's focused on Syria, not transnational terrorism, and has actually cracked down on al-Qaeda, ISIS militants in Idlib. Now, Takhar al-Sham, HDS, has some sort of understanding with Turkey, even though it's designated as a terrorist group because of its former al-Qaeda links by the UN, by much of the world and by Turkey itself. So from what I understand, Erdogan's rivals attack him for Turkey's policy towards HTS. On the other, it doesn't seem like there's an obvious alternative to having this sort of arrangement with HTS. It doesn't seem possible to weaken HTS by backing other groups in the northwest. HTS is now the dominant force there. The idea of Turkish forces going in themselves to try to fight HTS, that would be extremely unappealing to Ankara for several reasons. And as you say, pulling Turkish troops back, allowing some sort of regime offensive in the northwest, also disastrous for Turkey because of the potential for millions more Syrians to cross the border. So however much Erdogan's opponents might criticise him, for the policy towards HTS and for all the challenges that Turkey faces in the Northwest, it's not clear that there are other obvious options. It's hard to see an alternative to Idlib being a holding pen for the militants that are there. And I haven't heard a very uh, good argument about what else can be done. 
On the other hand, this may be the one issue that I see a very, very distinct difference between the government and the opposition, where the opposition really faults the government for having gotten into the situation where it has to accommodate HDS. And HDS knows this, and HDS-affiliated people within Turkey's borders, they say that they see the Turkish opposition coming to power as the most significant threat. And then we ask the Turkish opposition, what, what do you see as a significant threat? And they say HDS. So unlike the many other issues where you can actually see quite a lot of alignment between the opposition and, and the current government, on the, on the issue of, of HDS, in terms of rhetoric now at least, there's a significant discrepancy um, between the opposition and the government. But like you said, the day the opposition comes to power, their own rhetoric might change because they might be faced with the, with the reality that uh, there may not be a lot of other options. And Niga, another battlefield where Turkey's been involved is in the South Caucasus. So just over two years ago, in the latest war between Armenia and Azerbaijan, Azerbaijani forces captured back parts of Nagorno-Karabakh and these adjacent areas that Armenians had held since the early 1990s. And by all accounts, Turkey's drones and Turkey's military support more broadly was important to that offensive. Russia in the end broke a ceasefire. There's been talks between Armenia and Azerbaijan since, but they haven't achieved much. And there's also been these outbreaks of violence. So I want to come in a moment to relations between Turkey and Azerbaijan. But I mean, I don't know if you want to say something first about whether there's been any evolution in Turkey's relations with Armenia since the, the ceasefire. I mean, I understand that uh, Yerevan sent some relief to Turkey after the earthquake. I mean, is that a sign that things might be changing? Yeah, I mean, there's been a formal check between Yerevan and Ankara of talks since 2021. But they've been moving very slowly, and Turkey is particularly dragging its feet, let's say, in terms of opening borders and establishing diplomatic relations. But then, you know, the day that the Armenian trucks crossed the Turkish-Armenia border, I think four or five of them, seemed to usher in a new mood, where, for one, it was the first time we've seen uh, traffic along that road. And the negotiator of Armenia, Rubin Rumiyan, came to Turkey. There was um, photo ops with the Turkish foreign minister. And it appeared like a positive, at least, momentum might be unleashed after that. Though this wouldn't be the first time that Turkey and Armenia have made moves to normalize relations, but in the end, Ankara's ties to Baku always sort of prevail and, and stop that from happening. Yes, I mean, there have been efforts to normalize relations between Turkey and Armenia, at least three significant ones since the early 1990s. 2010 was the one that came the closest, and it really broke down because Baku put its foot down, saying that if Turkey opens borders with Armenia, then Armenia will have no incentive whatsoever to give back the territories that uh, are adjacent to Nagorno-Karabakh. And since then, Ankara has been very steadfast in looking to Aliyev for the green light of whether to open the borders with Armenia. And I don't see that changing. Would there be much in the way of economic benefit to Turkey in opening the border with Armenia? Well, economic benefit, um, it's, it's the border regions, the border provinces of Turkey that would benefit and the border provinces of Turkey are, are a very small component of Turkey's economy. 
Whereas when you think about Azerbaijan, it's uncomparable. Where Azerbaijan is one of the um, the leading trade partners of Turkey and um, one of the leading foreign investors in Turkey. And likewise, other way around, Turkey is also a big investor in Azerbaijan. It's like 12 million is Turkey's investment, so Azerbaijan, and 19 billion is Azerbaijan's um, investments in Turkey. So it's huge, um, uncomparable to, to whatever potential Armenia would have. So you have the economic relations, you have military to military relations where the defense it, there's almost a, both training, but also a conformity between the two militaries. And you have a very strong social and cultural um, tie where the public opinion polls in Turkey, I don't know about Azerbaijan, but probably it's the same, uh, show that Azerbaijan is Turkey's closest friend. Um, dialects are almost the same. They understand each other, eth- same ethnicity. And there's also a sort of sense of historical owing Azerbaijan support. There are a number of different reasons it exists, but the most recent one is that early 1990s, which I can actually remember, the newspapers were full of headlines of Turkey not being able to help Azerbaijan as its lands were being taken. And beyond the historic ties that you talked about, the strong economic connections, I mean, is Azerbaijan also sort of seen as important for Turkish influence, its reach not only in the South Caucasus, but uh, potentially also further afield? Very much so. It's sort of seen as the linchpin of Turkey's Eurasia aspirations. So if Turkey is ever going to have more influence in, in the Turkic world, so the four countries of Central Asia, it's assumed that it's going to be the, the pillar of that is going to be Azerbaijan, Turkey. I want to come in a moment to Turkish foreign policy writ large, where it stands today after almost two decades of Erdogan's rule. But Nigar, before we do that, can we just talk about one aspect of that foreign policy, which is this remarkable expansion over recent years in drone sales, actually not just drones, but also the sort of whole system of fighting with drones. So really over the past just a few years, Turkey has produced these Bayraktar TB2 drones that we heard about up top. And just to give people a sense, I mean, they cost what? about 5 million each, whereas the US Reaper drones, obviously very different system, more powerful but they cost upwards of 30 million. So basically you get several Turkish drones plus the system for operating them for tens of millions as opposed to hundreds of millions. And it's not just the Bayraktars, which are made by one Turkish company and are probably the best known and best selling, but there's several other Turkish companies that produce and export drones. And these drones, I mean, especially the Bayraktars, are generally seen as being effective, maybe even decisive in Libya, important in Nagorno-Karabakh. They played a role, I think, in Ethiopia in Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed's pushback against Tigrayan forces, but many countries now, dozens, I think, are buying or queuing up to buy Turkish drones. And these are private companies, but often with close ties to the government. I mean, presumably these sales, Nigar, give Turkey extra influence. I mean, is that how it's seen from Ankara? I mean, drones, yeah, drones, I think, across the, again, across the political spectrum, uh, not just drones, but the advancements in um, defense technologies is seen as a uh, a sign of Turkey's uh, ascendance. And like you said, yes, uh, Turkey's in the forefront now of, of exporting armed drones. And as far as I understand, it's more effective than comparable priced drones and um, has reached a clientele. As far as uh, last I knew, there were 20 states that had already purchased Turkish drones and I think uh, another 20 lined up to buy them. I think it is a sign of Turkey's broadening and deepening 
foreign policy. It's also a sign of a result, let's say, of Turkey's aspiration to be um, to be autonomous and not be dependent on other powers that will have conditions on Turkey's use of such technologies. Right, because isn't the background that Western states were reluctant to let Turkey have the technology without, as you say, certain conditions? So, in essence, Ankara developed its own. Exactly. It was Turkey's fight against PKK where... Turkey needed its own drones uh, in the mountainous terrains of, of southeast Turkey and north Iraq. Drones were very important, and Turkey could not accept the, that um, its Western allies would put conditions on how the drones would be used if they sold them. And that was a, really a, a trigger of Turkey making the investment to develop its own. And I, I think it's also, you know, drones, yes, they're important, but it's more importantly, it's a sign of, of what Turkey aspires to do it's also used in arguments that excluding Turkey will only lead to Turkey developing its own means to pursue its interests with its own capabilities. And Nigo, obviously the drone sales are good for the Turkish economy, Turkish defence industry, but is it possible to tease out more concretely how the sales translate into more Turkish influence? Well, in the short term, when and if the drones exported change the tide of a conflict, there's certainly a clout boost. This can, of course, be short term. Whether drone sales translate into greater long-term influence for Ankara or not will become clearer with time. But the assumption in Ankara is that it will serve the foreign policy ambitions. One reason it might be lasting is because the defense sector ties have to continue after the purchase. So there's on-site training, there's periodical software upgrade, maintenance, spare parts, ammunitions that supposedly are made in Turkey, and such links that tie the client in to Turkish companies. And the Turkish companies, at the end of the day, are subject to approvals by the Turkish Defense Ministry and the Presidency of the Defense Industries and the Foreign Affairs. So there are ties that are lasting. But besides all that, there's also just the end in itself of developing the industry. So the clearest very short-term benefit for Turkey is the revenue. Uh, the more defense industry companies export, the more revenue they have for research and development, and that makes them more competitive. And then we've also talked to company representatives who say that they gain invaluable experience just testing their technology in different altitudes or climate conditions. And does Ankara have any qualms about the way the drones are used, whether they harm civilians, whether they perpetuate conflict, but also sort of reputational damage they might do to Turkey itself? Ankara seems to be extremely sensitive to being held to higher standards than other drone exporters. But, of course, to the extent that Turkey's technologies are spreading across the globe, there will be more skeptics focusing on the risk that Turkey's drones are causing instability in weak states. So on the one hand, its status as a top drone exporter does grant Turkey greater clout uh, and confidence. It's also going to bring more scrutiny and responsibility about the misuse by importers. What Ankara will say is that it supplies drones to UN-recognized governments rather than non-state or unrecognized actors. But of course, once exported, it is impossible to have 100% control over how and to what ends buyers use the systems. And this is the case for other drone exporters as well. And therefore, including Turkey in the conversations regarding the controls and regulations will be increasingly important.
Nigar, if we look back on the last couple of decades of Erdogan's foreign policy, it's often described as sort of being in a few different phases. So the early years, looking towards Europe, aimed at getting into the European Union. And then as the accession talks ground to a halt, the second phase, sort of pivot away from Europe, more focus on the Middle East. Zero problems with neighbours, as the influential foreign minister at the time, Ahmed Davatoglu, called it. So Turkey backed the 2011 Arab uprisings, particularly the Muslim Brotherhood, seemed like a good bet at the time. But then those revolutions mostly failed. The Muslim Brotherhood was ousted in Egypt. Libya collapsed into civil war. Assad survived. And Turkey then had this period of fraught relations with much of the Arab world, especially in the Gulf Egypt, its relations with the US were very difficult. As we mentioned, Washington started supporting the YPG as part of the counter-ISIS campaign. You had the attempted coup in 2016. And Erdogan also found himself isolated in the East Mediterranean, which we haven't talked about. Cyprus, Israel, Egypt, Greece sort of formed this block against him. And this phase, I think, correct me if this is wrong, has been dubbed by some Turkish officials as precious loneliness. So you had this pro-Europe phase, you had a zero problems with neighbours phase, a precious loneliness phase, but now we're in something different. I mean, after these, you know, from Ankara's perspective, successful military interventions in Libya, Nagorno-Karabakh, and part of this new phase is the drone diplomacy. But there's also been this emphasis on outreach, repairing some of these strained relations, so outreach to the Saudis, to the Emirates, to Israel, and even some signs of thaws in the relations with Egypt. Do you want to say a word or two about the thinking behind these latest changes and some of this diplomacy in the region? Well, economic considerations are playing a bigger role now in the recalibration of Turkey's foreign policy. And you see that really being in the forefront of the reconciliation with Gulf partners because Turkey is reaping benefits via different types of economic agreements with the UAE and Saudi Arabia that inject much-needed cash into the Turkish economy. And I think no matter who's in power, economic imperatives are going to be decisive in Turkey's foreign policy in the period ahead because Turkey needs foreign investment, it needs to sell to foreign markets, and it also needs to not be subject to embargoes and have a good credit rating. So less tension, more growth is an overarching theme in Ankara today. And since 60% of Turkey's trade and investment is with Europe, mending ties with European partners is bound to also be uh, central. But then there are other factors as well that are playing into Turkey's changing foreign policy. Ideology is playing less of a, of a role. And of course, this has also uh, played a, a role in the normalization with Saudi Arabia and the Emirates and, and Egypt because the ascendance of the Muslim Brotherhood affiliates in the region uh, is not bet on anymore. But perhaps most importantly, I think, which also makes it difficult to characterize Turkish foreign policy, is the need to keep options open is a very distinct feature in the strategic thinking today in Ankara. There's so much uncertainty in the region in the regions that Turkey is at the center of. And there's also the assumed onset of multipolarity in the world order. So there's a strive for autonomy. Uh, there's a sense that Turkey needs to break up the anti-Turkey alignments that left Turkey standing alone. And this is also very important in its East Med um, positioning. But there's also a sense that Turkey doesn't know what's going to evolve outside of, of Turkey, and therefore it needs to keep options open. And um, maybe one last one. If you're 
sitting in a Western capital. I guess there's sort of different ways, broadly speaking, to look at how to deal with Turkey, obviously, a, you know, in some ways a tricky ally, only some of the interests are shared. In one way to think about it would be to be more forceful, tougher on Turkey, pressure for it to join sanctions on Ukraine, align its policies more closely with those of NATO allies, for example. On the other hand, there's maybe a sense that Turkey, like other non-Western middle powers, is just too big to push around. And the more it feels that Western powers are insensitive to its interests, not just related to Russia, but also, for example, with the YPG, the more it might look to Russia or even to China, that Western powers have got to be realistic about what increasing multipolarity in the world means for a country like Turkey. Well, there's no simple answer, because Turkey straddles East Europe, Eurasia, Middle East. It's a NATO member, one who also has growing clout in the global defense market. A Western partner can look at Ankara and see it as an opportunity to counterbalance Russian or Chinese or Iranian influence all at once. Or it can see Turkey as a rising challenge, poised to take advantage of the vacuums left by a weakening Russia and the retrenching U.S. So the question is, and, and has often been, is Turkey a strategic risk or is it a challenging ally? And I think in that question is going to prevail, and Turkey's uncertain domestic politics is also one reason that that question lives on. And I think as we face elections, that's also a factor. I think there's also a lot of moving parts, though, in the West that make for conflicting approaches. So there are differences within and among EU countries on the basis of values and interests, a lot of fluctuation, and there are differences between Europe and Washington and within Washington. So coherence from Western partners as much as it would be desired, also looks unlikely. But at the end of the day, Turkey and the West share many overlapping goals. Neither want an unbridled Iran nor Russia's free reign. Turkey is going to continue to be focused on the pursuit of its own interests. and That's not going away. And I don't think that Ankara's skepticism about particularly U.S. plans in the region is going away either. But at the end of the day, creating more platforms for dialogue to accommodate mutual interests and incentivizing Turkey to cooperate is still a better bet than resigning to work at cross-purposes. Nigar, thanks so much for coming on again. Thank you, Richard. It's been great. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. You can find all of our work on Turkey, on Turkey's foreign policy, on our website, crisisgroup.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at Crisis Group. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and thanks, of course, to all of you, our listeners. Please do get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org or write to me directly at word at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, if you like the show, please do leave us a positive rating or review. Say something nice about us wherever you get your podcasts. Sorry this episode was a little bit late. Nigar and I were juggling our schedules over the last few days. There won't be an episode this Friday, and we're also off next week, but we'll be back the week after that, and I very much hope that you'll join us again then.